welcome to the study class hosted by bothi commons today we have with us vijay prashad uh, who is a very well known indian historian of the globe of the global south he is also a well known editor and journalist he is the executive director of tricontinental institute for social research Uh, as many of you might already know he used to be a professor of international relations in the united states he resigned his job in 2017 and founded the tricontinental institute for social research he is also the chief editor of leftward books uh, and he is a writing fellow and chief correspondent at globe trotter a project of the independent media institute uh, he is a prolific writer he has written more than 20 books including the darker nations a people's history of the third world the poorer nations a possible history of the global south no free left the futures of indian communism which is a history of the indian left and red star over the third world he writes regularly for frontline the hindu news click alternate birgun and many other websites uh today he is with us to talk about the the corona shock and the global left i invite vijay prashad to speak okay good evening uh, thanks ubin um and uh, pratish for inviting me um i'm going to you know it's a very difficult time to think analytically about anything um you know this virus this pandemic global pandemic um is very serious and um it's not clear exactly uh when the peak will come of the pandemic um you know i think the indian government was characteristically unconcerned about planning for what was coming and um you know those who felt that warm weather would take care of it and so on i think that was an extremely callous approach uh, as you see now you know um, i don't know 60000 people vanished in punjab who came from abroad cannot be found um people in tamil nadu now as community spreaders and so on this is a very serious problem that i think the world is facing but you know despite that i'm not going to concentrate on um, sars cov 2 itself I want to talk about the history behind why this virus has paralyzed the world. I think that's to my mind an important background and based on that history what are the tasks of the global left um in the way forward. So just to organize what I'm going to say and to make it easier for you to absorb what I'm saying my presentation will be in three parts. The first part will be how capitalism was quite dramatically transformed from the 1970s and i'll introduce you to two concepts to talk about this transformation the overarching concept is of course the word globalization but you know that word is almost mystical now it doesn't have concrete understanding or concrete resonance so there are two categories that i'm going to share with you to really get your teeth into the concept of globalization one is the disarticulation of production and i'll explain that later disarticulation of production the breaking up of production and the second is deregulation of finance so 
That will be the first part of the presentation. The implications of this will be the second part. The first part will be on globalization. The second part will be the implications of disarticulated production, deregulated finance. What those implications are, are actually very much have bearing on the current conjuncture. So the implications are that governments found it very hard under pressure to manage their budgets. And we saw a policy slate develop, in fact, mature, called neoliberalism. That's the second concept, second big concept. And under neoliberalism, what you saw is at least two different approaches governments took to handle what was essentially a budgetary problem, but also a class problem. And the first approach is austerity measures, cuts, deep cuts in social spending, and the second is privatization, privatization of very many parts of social life. Okay, so that'll be the second part of the presentation. And then the third part will be the way forward. What are the tasks of the global left? So I hope that's going to be you know, useful for you. So let me start immediately on the first part. The first part, as I said, is the concept of globalization. Now, we know what this means. It means that capitalism breaks free of barriers and has a global footprint. You know, the kind of logic that Marx and Engels write about in the Communist Manifesto, where capitalism, as they write, breaks down Chinese walls. Well, the principal Chinese walls broken about 40 to 50 years ago were, of course, the fall of the Soviet Union and the Eastern European states, communist state system, of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union collapsed. China in 1978 began a reform process, particularly for sections of coastal China. And then, of course, the third world collapsed. In, in India, the really important date is 1991. But liberalization had begun after the emergency. So you had India, most of the African continent, large parts of South America, Chinese coastline, Soviet state system, communist state system, all of them, in a sense, collapsed and surrendered hundreds of millions of workers to global capital. And what global capital was able to do in this time of globalization was, as I said, two things. And I'm going to quickly go over these two concepts. One was disarticulation of production. That's the first. Disarticulation, it's an interesting word. It means breaking up. So in the old days, say a factory, let's say outside Chennai, in Coimbatore, might manufacture the whole of an automobile. Much better example is the Maruti plant outside Delhi. You could make the whole car in one factory. But what they found in the 1970s and 80s, for a series of technological, scientific reasons, because of the collapse of the third world and the communist state system, because of all that, they were able to take a car factory based in, say, Detroit, Michigan, and break it up into its constituent parts so that you could make the tires in Malaysia, you could make the chassis in Singapore, you could make steering wheel in, in India, you could make different parts of the car in different places. And then you assemble the whole car in Mexico and sell it into the US market. So you break up a factory into many constituent parts. This is very important for capitalism because you subcontract each of the parts of production. You no longer have to be like Ford Motor Company, raising an enormous amount of capital to build a giant factory, to hire workers, to buy raw materials, market the car, and so on. You didn't have to take an enormous financial risk in producing the car. Many parts of car production were happening in countries by subcontractors, so that a subcontracted firm in Malaysia was making the tires. That means that Ford Motor Company didn't have to raise so much capital to make the car. It actually 
had these subcontractors take the risks, raise the capital, make the car and so on, make the tire, and then the tire would arrive in Mexico when it would eventually be attached to the car. So Ford Motor Company would actually get involved in the car production business at the assembly stage in many cases. You know, the famous shoe, Nike. Nike makes no shoes. Every piece of the Nike shoe is subcontracted to somebody else. That means big corporations, transnational companies, found that they needed to invest less in production. They needed to take less risks in production. And this is going to become very important for the second concept, which was basically just the question of deregulation of finance. We'll come back to that. As I said, capital, by disarticulating production, reduced its own risk because it didn't have to invest in factories that made bits and pieces of um, the product, the commodity, overseas. And that freed up capital. And I'm going to come back to that freed up capital. So remember that. As important, by disarticulating production, capital was able to weaken labor and this was a major historical defeat for labor because if you organize a factory that makes tires and you start a strike there, Ford Motor Company won't source tires from you. They source tires from somebody else. It's impossible to paralyze capitalism if you've disarticulated the whole commodity into bits and pieces. And then the person who suffers is the subcontractors. Very clever way that they reorganized global capitalism at the manufacturing end. They essentially made labor relatively powerless in these sectors, where labor was very strong in trade unions, in, in heavy manufacturing, in these kind of big commodity products like cars, refrigerators, so on. Labor suddenly had very little purchase, very difficult time. They also made nationalization much more complicated because if you nationalize the tire manufacturing plant, it's very difficult to sell the tires. You'll be punished as a country. Okay, so... These are the ways in which disarticulation of production advantaged capital and disadvantaged labor. The second concept under globalization is deregulated finance. Remember, the car manufacturer or the shoe manufacturer didn't have to invest in the subcontractor. The subcontractor invested there. They had to raise money inside their relatively impoverished countries. Precious surplus went into building those factories. They got deals from their governments, whether the Malaysian government or the Indian government or whatever. But these big transnational firms didn't have to invest in the entirety of commodity production. So they had vast amounts of capital free. Many auto companies no longer actually make cars. Uh, many of these big American auto manufacturers, bulk of their business isn't in car manufacturing. It's in giving car loans. They give loans to buy cars which were manufactured by somebody else, which they didn't sell. Um, so they're in the money business. And the moment finance was largely deregulated, it's a political decision, they began to, this enormous trillions, hundreds of, of millions of dollars, trillions of dollars, top heavy, uh, was invested in stock markets and then in esoteric and exotic in instruments like derivatives and so on. So globalization created the political power of finance was enabled by globalization. This way in which, because you didn't have to invest in a factory, you had all this surplus capital, which you then put into stock markets. So you move to tax havens, you use that money to buy political influence, you stop paying taxes. You know, uh, It was a class war, essentially, by the very rich. And so that's the concept of globalization. It, you should not understand globalization merely as, you know, the world is united. It's a very trivial and silly way to understand. You've got to understand precisely 
as on the one side, the disarticulation of production for a series of factors, you know, labor was delivered, political collapse of the communist state system and so on. So a huge number of East European labor moves to work in, East, in West German factories and so on. And secondly, the deregulation of finance, which gives power to the rich over the politics of the period. Okay, so that's the first point, which is globalization. Um, as a response to an earlier capitalist crisis, but then it ends up advantaging capital. Now, governments, social democratic governments, right-wing governments, sort of center-left governments, basically states around the world in most countries found that they were beginning to get relatively powerless in raising funds to do anything on the social side for their country. There was, of course, the International Monetary Fund pressure for structural adjustment. There was also this globalization pressure. They were not able to recover taxes for manufacturing. They'd have to create more and more free tax zones, you know, export processing zones, and so on. So the collection of tax became a serious political problem. And many of these countries, therefore, were borrowing either from commercial markets or from sovereign funds or they were borrowing from the IMF, World Bank, and so on. And their debt, even though there had been a debt crisis earlier, in the early 1980s, a very severe debt crisis, debt burdens for countries began to increase. At the same time, when they went to get their debt financed, they were told by their creditors, including, of course, the IMF and the United States Treasury Department, which controls, you know, and I'm using this word deliberately, which controls the IMF, and substantially influences ratings agencies like the SNP, you know, and so on, Moody's and, and so on. These ratings agencies are highly influenced by the U.S. Treasury Department. We saw how the IMF is totally influenced. They just denied Venezuela the right to taking a loan, a COVID loan, essentially. Okay, so these institutions would show up and say you have to cut your social side of your budget. That includes health, education, and so on. So underneath this crisis of the state, you saw the state taking on what we consider a neoliberal characteristic. We saw the emergence of the neoliberal state. So from earlier kinds of state, you know, basic uh, character of the state might have been a national democratic state, might have been, you know, some sort of nationalist bourgeois state, whatever. You start seeing a specific character of the global state structure, you have the entry of the neoliberal state. And the classic part of the neoliberal state is twofold. One is austerity, cuts basically against the social side. There was no austerity for military spending. I mean, India is one of the most obscene countries. If you look at the Indian budget, you know, I often say to people, the values of a country should be studied based not on its constitution, but on its budget. If you study the Indian budget, it's obscene. Uh, the amount of money the Indian government spends to import weaponry. You know, it's the world's largest importer of weapons. Um, you know, it imports half of the weapons that Israel exports. Um, it's hideous, you know. You should not believe that Indian values are best understood in the Constitution. That's an idealistic approach. A materialist approach would understand Indian values based on what the budget look like, looks like. And the budget is miserable because the cuts against the social side, not only in India, in these neoliberal states has been quite formidable. Okay, so 
that is the first part of the neoliberal state is the generalized austerity you know of the social side and that of the social side is important they didn't cut everything you know they gave it was easy to write off loans to big um, corporate houses you know uh, uh, you know ambani needs a forgiveness haircut on a loan sure you know and then it's done politically we don't like vijay malia we won't give him a haircut we like somebody we'll give them a haircut that is okay that's happening corporate forgiveness or whatever but there's no forgiveness to farmers and so on unless it's politically valuable and then it's very targeted before an election before some key votes and so on but there is generalized austerity on the social side of the budget now this has cataclysmic impact on the current corona shock and i'd like to return to that in a minute the second concept under the neoliberal state is privatization um this is important because you know we understand what privatization means privatization of public sector un- units especially those that are productive that are able enable that can make money and so on privatize those the ones that are unproductive well government continues to let them bleed you know that sort of attitude uh, we understand that kind of privatization i'm talking about a different privatization and i'm going to come to that in a minute but what is the concept privatization you see underneath the concept privatization for a marxist is the concept of commodification and this is a very key distinction privatization doesn't just mean that huge areas of business life are in private hands you know that's not a, itself a problem you know uh, in a socialist society i'm not sure you need to have all barber shops for instance controlled by the state i mean i don't know what a 21st century socialist civilization would look like but i'm not sure that all aspects of the economy need to be and should not be actually i, I would say it harder should not be state run i think that there's an enormous place for cooperatives and so on and if you'd like we can come back to that privatization underneath that is the concept commodification what does that mean you see there are there have been historically in human history enormous areas of human interaction social interaction uh, which did not involve money for instance um it was perfectly acceptable for centuries for people to enjoy the forests um you would go into the forest um if you would find fallen wood dead wood you could you know harvest that wood as it were take it back to where you're living burn it for fuel burn it for cooking you didn't have to go to a market and buy the wood uh, you were allowed to go into the forest if you wanted to eat uh, an animal you could go and hunt the animal you see what happens in much of the world in the very modern period is what marx uh, called in capital the enclosure movement he described it in england where the uh, common lands forests and so on were enclosed and if you went to try to kill a bird to eat it was called poaching it was a crime you could go to prison um, engels and marx wrote very early on when they were young men separately about a law and marx's essay is brilliant on this a law in prussia against the collection of firewood and if you see the film the young marx it opens with that sequence of uh, in prussia where the peasants were told you can't go and collect wood anymore it's the lord's wood suddenly common land becomes private property and by making it private property the resource in the common land becomes a commodity which you have to buy and sell that's what we mean by commodification when marxists talk about commodification we mean that common things things in common fresh air suddenly become commodified 
um, you have to buy the air. Um, you have to buy the air because the capitalist manufacturing concern is ruining the air with pollution. And then they are selling you pure oxygen to breathe in a canister. They've commodified what's a common resource, water. I mean, the very fact that we have to buy water to drink um, in a planet which is mostly water is a hideous reflection of how far we've made natural the process of commodification. You know, it's totally acceptable to buy water. It's not acceptable to buy water. Water is as much a common property as sunshine, um, as air, you know, uh, as, as leisure. Uh, you should not have to buy leisure. You know, um, it, it's, it, that's an idiotic idea. But you do, because capitalism is a colonizer of common experiences and of human life. It seeks to make every part of human life into a commodity. And so therefore, after this period, in the period of the neoliberal state, the neoliberal state encouraged capital, private capital, to commodify more and more parts of human life. The battle over water privatization was so key in South America. In Bolivia, for instance, the entire political cycle that brought you know, the left to power, led by Evo Morales, uh, was because of a water and gas fight, um, particularly centered in the provincial capital of Cochabamba, uh, where they fought over the privatization of water given to a San Francisco, United States-based company named Bechtel. Um, that was an enormous battle. They said, we should not have to privatize our water delivery. Water is an inalienable right of human beings, um, and so on. So privatization was a mechanism, essentially, to cannibalize society for governments to get short-term infusions of cash um, to manage their budgets. This was not a sustainable long-term solution. These were all short-term sell-offs, you know? Um, you may not even want to call it privatization. You might want to call it piratization. You know, these pirates would show up, these gangsters would show up, and they would, for very low amounts of money, um, take over the delivery of what should essentially be a human right. Inside austerity and inside privatization, the attack on health and education is specifically very strong. And most of you have been through the student movement and understand this very well. Both privatization of education, commodification of education, the cuts to education. And if you now understand it because you're looking at corona shock, the cuts to health, privatization of health, and the commodification of parts of healthcare. So let me do both of these because they're both important. You see, the more you privatize healthcare, I'm sorry, education, um, especially in a society which is not predisposed to, you know, uh, reason, uh, as you know, where reason is a struggle. Um, you know, reason is not a normal thing. Reason is a struggle. We struggle to bring reason into the world. Um, because of that, there's a tendency in a capitalist society, particularly in the private sector, where, you know, whoever owns the place is going to set the tune. You know, uh, you get all kinds of irrational ideas promoted. I mean, here you have a virus um, entering into the world. You need a scientific explanation. You need the health minister of India to be on the television every day 
to give the most up-to-date WHO-approved scientific analysis and assessment of what is known, what is happening, and so on. Health minister is not to be seen. The explanations are nonsense. I mean, for months they were talking about urine therapy, cow dung, and various other bits of nonsense. You know, if you don't have a robust public education system where reason is part of the struggle, you'll end up having having people talk about urine therapy for COVID-19 or make a lot of noise and the demons will be scared away. You know, that kind of attitude. If you destroy education, this is where you leave people. They will be left without the weapons to understand what's happening in the world. So that's why actually the cuts and the attack on education is so significant. It's not just about that, you know, you struggle to have different people get education. It's also the quality of what is being taught. It seems to me in the privatized, commodified, austerity age of education, the struggle to realize reason in the world has been compromised. Um, now you end up fighting over the curriculum. I mean, it's absurd what's happening to education around the world. That's the, what has happened to education. But let's spend a few minutes on what's happened to medicine and health. Firstly, um, it is ridiculous that you have medical colleges and medical training centers that are private sector. Because then young people have to go into debt. They have to find a way to finance their medical education. And then when they finish their degree, they have to become basically shopkeepers of medicine. They have to go into areas which are lucrative. Uh, they can no longer really serve the people and so on. The moment you enter private medical education, you've ruined the whole system. Uh, that's the first big problem with the medical system in most countries in the world. You privatize medical education, you're ruining the whole sector. You're, you're in a sense, distorting the, the, the attempt to rationalize the sector. Secondly, we all know, we, science has taught us that public health is the most crucial part of social medicine, the most crucial part. ASHA workers and so on in, in the Indian context, but around the world, community health delivery people and so on. Every country has some kind of community health delivery, but it has totally been underfunded in the austerity period and it has been denigrated. You know, the brain surgeon is the hero. The community health worker is considered to be less than, uh, you know, just a manual laborer. This is the heart of the problem of the aspirational neoliberalism, you know. Uh, you aspire to be a brain surgeon, not to be a... And plus, you've taken so many loans to go to private education, you're moving increasingly towards the need to have... Uh, to be a brain surgeon, to recover the money, to get out of debt, and so on. And then the whole community expectations on you, etc., all that enormous stuff. What I'm saying is, it's this issue of privatization of, of medicine starts with education, starts with the civilization's values. If you value the community health worker so poorly, you're going to value the community health system almost nil. And in most of these countries, community health was totally destroyed. Hospital privatization is an extraordinarily dangerous thing. The United States is, in a sense, the most advanced example of the ruin of medicine through privatization. You know, on average, in the United States, a hospital bed is empty for only four days. That means for 361 days, 
the bed is occupied. Because what happens in a private hospital is the bed becomes real estate. You have to rent the bed out constantly. It can never be empty. That means a private sector medical system has no surge capacity. It cannot deal with an outbreak of anything, you know, let alone a global pandemic. The moment there's an outbreak, there's a crisis because you don't have resources. You just have enough medicines because you don't want to keep a backlog. So hospitals became like just-in-time factories. You know, you don't want to hold an inventory. You just want to hold enough to sell. Um, it was extremely efficient in terms of money and capitalism and, and, and you know, accumulating profit out of this business entity. But it's not efficient for medical purposes and certainly not in a pandemic. So that's the second point I wanted to make, which is we are in the crisis of the neoliberal state. It has shown that when corona shock hit it, it was basically not able to function. Now, the third part. I hope you got a chance to read the 16-point plan um, that we developed at the um, International People's Assembly and at Tricontinental. Uh, if you didn't get a chance, it's in the chat, and I recommend at some point you go and read the 16 points. You know, I don't want to go over all the points, but I want to make some broad statements. Um, and then, you know, if there's time or if it's easy, we can do some questions and so on. I just want to make some broad points. Um, one of the broad points is that, you know, this COVID or SARS-CoV-2 um, has demonstrated to us that the neoliberal state system and, in a sense, the capitalist project is in a serious crisis. But because capitalism and the bourgeois order is still robust, it hasn't collapsed entirely, it is trying to control this crisis, manage it, and find a way to exit from it. This is important. It has produced its own program to get out of COVID-19. One of the ways it's going to do that is raise an enormous amount of capital and put that capital into shoring up initially stock markets around the world, bail out companies, provide bridge funding, and so on. The very fact that the International Monetary Fund has opened a $1 trillion window and said to countries, you can, as long as you're not Venezuela and Iran, because the United States has told us not to lend money to you, anybody else can come and take money as bridge funding to get through this crisis. And, you know, it's a virus, so it's not going to last forever. There will be death, enormous death. There will be enormous social dislocation, but capitalism will return. That's the capitalist program. And I doubt very much that we'll come to a criticism of private medicine or any of that, because at the end of the day, an ideological battle has already opened between China and the United States about the question of who was able to tackle COVID-19. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, yes, we can say China socialist society was able to, but in fact, if you broaden your horizon, it was the East Asian countries, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, China, which were able to, as it were, flatten the curve because they have robust state systems. Uh, the state wasn't hollowed out. They didn't actually produce neoliberal states. Um, it's not just, it's not merely that because China is a socialist country that it was able to bend the curve. I think that's not enough. It was also that China, like South Korea, has a robust state system. Um, you know, whereas India, the state 
you know, was basically already weak, already, I mean, weak on the social side, already disregarded um, public education, public health, you know, already from 1947. And then even further weakened it after 91. Um, and that's a big difference between India and China. China built a robust state system, built a robust um, education and health system, and so on. India destroyed that, you know, uh, not destroyed, never built it, sorry. Uh, and then made it even worse after 91. Um, so the capitalist project by the attack on China and so on, the suggestion that it's the United States that will find the vaccine and the United States will do all these high-tech things that will save the world, you know, this attitude is already there, this ideological battle. That means they are trying to, you know, preserve whatever ideological gains they have now for the post-COVID-19 um, period. But therefore, for that reason, we have to have an agenda. We have to have a program. We have to be out there fighting for the post-COVID period as much as we're fighting for relief now. For instance, I think the argument must be made about decommodifying vast areas of, of the world. I mean, the, what the government in Kerala is doing is very intelligent. It's not necessarily just doing cash transfers to people. You know, cash transfers essentially commodifies relief. You provide cash and then you say you go and buy food. You'll create food inflation. Prices may go up. It, you know, food sellers will hoard and so on. It's far better for the government to come in there, buy food and create food kitchens in every panchayat, every district to feed people. You know, uh, I mean, I don't see why this needs to be only done in an emergency. Uh, this should be a normal practice that in, uh, in a so socialist civilization, we have neighborhood places where we volunteer to provide, produce food and we eat together. Um, you know, this is what they attempted to do when oil prices were high in Venezuela, create neighborhood kitchens, public kitchens, where you come in, you eat, you volunteer for a few hours and so on, and it's non-commodified. There's no payment involved. You just have to come and volunteer, and the state provides raw materials to the kitchen and so on. I mean, we have to think creatively uh, about the post-COVID future. You know, we have to think about... Um, highlighting the role of cooperatives in the world today. Um, that in China, for instance, there is already an enormous uh, uh, discussion inside China about the role that neighborhood committees play in virus control. Um, you know, these Jue uh, Hui or neighborhood committees were out there, you know, checking people's temperature, going around house to house. Um, they played an extremely important role. Or in Venezuela, we're already seeing the commune system kick in, uh, make sure people are eating, you know, the commune leaders. Commune, of course, in Spanish is a different meaning, resonance than uh, that terrible phrase in India, communalism. Uh, such a borderization of a great idea from the Paris commune. In India, of course, we made it a wreck, communalism. But the communes in... Um, in Venezuela and Caracas, you know, I visited about five or six of them, uh, very robust neighborhood structure. In other words, they have public action as a key feature of their socialism, you know. And so it's whatever we think about in the post-COVID universe, um, the answer for uh, the, you know, to go beyond this neoliberal state structure is not to have a better state you know, a left-wing state and so on. No, 
we have to fight to produce more organization of society, you know, uh, decentralize um, the way we live. I think this is very key. This was shown in Kerala to a great extent that people's organizations, CITU, uh, you know, comes into action, creates the DYFI, Democratic Youth Federation, they come into action, create sinks at bus stations, people can wash their hands and so on. You know, this kind of public action uh, by organizations is very important. You know, governments sometimes are centralized, they cannot act. So it's a combination of a government which is, you know, not have the class interests of the bourgeoisie is primary, combination of that, I mean, that is when a left political force is able to take over a state, and public action. But underneath everything is the first point I was talking about, which is the way production is organized and the role of private property. You see, I'm not saying that the answer is socialism because I've believed in socialism as a, the political future uh, for decades. You know, I'm not just saying it, you know, every Marxists always say that, you know, the capitalist crisis is coming this time. And then I, I'm not like that. I don't believe the sky is falling on our head and so on. But I think that we have, for the last 30, 30 years or so, reached the point where capitalist, the capitalist project and the bourgeois political system is simply unable to address the problems it's created. It no longer has good answers. You know, um, so, for instance, the capitalists now are talking about universal basic income. You know, let's provide, because they know, they recognize the fact that the capitalists are talking about universal basic income is they've basically decided that hundreds of millions of people around the world will never get a job where they are being paid by the capitalist sector. You know, the capitalist sector has no need of hundreds of millions of people in the world, maybe a billion people, are of no consequence to capital anymore. They are a surplus population. Well, you can't just leave... One billion people without any means to survive. So then you turn to the state and say, well, the state should pay them a minimum income. Um, and, you know, then the state cheats and says, we'll put all welfare spending into one pool. That's what India did. And we'll pay some small amounts here. And then we'll target it, which is not the point. I mean, we have to recognize that capitalism just doesn't have a solution now. The bourgeois political order has no solution to the fact that up to a billion people may not be able to earn an income. We have to therefore understand that this project has reached a dead end. The problem is the socialist project is, as of now, extraordinarily weak globally. When we talk about a global left, those two words, it's easy to put them together, global and left. It's much harder to see it actually materially in the planet. We are a very weak force. Um, and by the way, India is one of the places where the left is stronger than in many countries in the world. We are a very weak force. And it's our subjective weakness that is preventing us from moving this objective crisis forward to advance the objective crisis. We're blocked in the middle of this long objective crisis that opens up decades ago and has gone through several turbulent periods, financial crises, dot-com crises, asset bubbles inflated, asset bubbles collapsing, and now this pandemic-induced corona shock. Um, the objective crisis is there for us to all see. The subjective problem, I think, is something we need to face, we need to discuss, we need to 
really think about how to grow our movements, you know, how to um, show people that the capitalist project is really at a dead end. And we have to show people that the possibilities of a socialist project. And that's why it's important to talk about the future as much as anything. You know, in a socialist um, system, uh, we would enhance, you know, public health, public education. We would struggle to bring reason into the world, you know, whether it's reason of thought or reason of policy. We struggle to bring reason into the world. I mean, it's so ridiculous um, that we have governments around the world that peddle unreason, um, that go there and say whatever they want. And, you know, Trump is perhaps the largest buffoon here. Uh, but Yair Bolsonaro in Brazil is a close second. And I dare say Narendra Modi is there in the running, you know, to be in the top three. Um, you know, they say things that are just not credible. Um, they are not part of the struggle to bring reason into the world. And I think we need to talk about that openly. You know, we call that the battle of ideas. The battle of ideas is nothing other than the struggle to bring reason into the world. We don't believe that reason is intuitive, um, that reason is something that we all, you know, rationality is just a, you know, if only people got it. You know, it's something I have discussed with many over the years. Don't agree with Chomsky. Chomsky believes that if you only told people the truth, they would believe you. Uh, if you give them more facts, they'll accept your viewpoint. I don't think that's true. I think it's a struggle to bring reason into the world. It's not, you know, something that just happens. So, I mean, you have to be part of this battle of ideas. That's the first thing I would say. Secondly, you have to be part of encouraging people to understand the power of the future, the necessity of the future, the impossibility of um, this capitalist project to continue? What would the future look like? Um, and that's a conversation that is not idealistic. It's not utopian. It's actually extraordinarily pragmatic and real. Okay, so what's next? Well, I see a question. Shall I start answering it? Okay. Um, this is a very important question. Can we have any sort of global research and development for pooling left-wing ideas and organization of sorts? Well, please go to our website. Um, the tricontinental.org. It's a research institute um, where one of the things we're very interested in is, in fact, what we call the future. Um, we, we call that area of our research um, the future. We're very interested in trying to assemble, um, you know, ideas. Um, you know, if you go to our research agenda page, there's it says project number three, future. We want to assemble ideas that already exist, that are part of today's um, practices. You know, for instance, Subin and I wrote a, um, a short article um, about the experience of Kerala. And, uh, you know, we, we were both very interested in, first, the uh, attempt by the health minister of Kerala to bring reason into the world, you know, the struggle to bring reason. Um, you know, when she heard that Wuhan had been hit by a, some sort of, at that point, mysterious virus, she said there are students from Kerala and Wuhan, let's assemble a working group, start looking at it. Um, so we, you know, that's a very, that's not a trivial thing, by the way, to assemble a working group to start monitoring the situation. When did the Indian government form a working group? I don't even know if there is a working group now. 
um, how many of you can name the Indian health minister? What's his name? You know, but the health minister of Kerala made sure she was doing press conferences every day, um, being scientific and rational about what was going on as, as much as one knows. I mean, that's why I use the phrase trying to bring reason into the world. You know, it's a struggle. So we have to accumulate um, the best ideas, best experiences, you know, uh, what the Cubans were able to do. You know, why did the Cubans decide not to build a big army? Why did they decide to put so much of their surplus into medicine um, and into pharmaceutical uh, industry as well? They don't import any medicines, you know, hardly any. Um, they, they, the small island makes most of their things. So, I mean, um, yes, that's what we are doing. But, you know, there's room for many other places um, uh, to do this kind of uh, pooling of left-wing ideas. So maybe Bodhi Commons can be one of them. So the other one is, what are the possible ways in which the system can cop out from this crisis, just as in 2008? Uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, actually, a bunch of these questions are similar. Uh, what are the possible ways in which the system can cop out from the crisis? Um, if this is a dead end for capitalism, what would be the way forward practically? Um, you mentioned that you don't think that the sky is falling down. Why do you think so? Do you think that this entire civilization can be collectively revived? I think these are all similar questions. Look, if there's no uh, challenge, serious political challenge to the system, the system will find a way to revive itself. Um, you know, it has done so before. Um, the influenza uh, pandemic um, produced, in a way, um, it comes during World War One. It um, was, you know, right after the influenza pandemic. Sixty percent of the death, by the way, from that pandemic took place in India. Um, right after that pandemic, it had differential impacts in the West. There was no immediate problem. You know, you had the Roaring Twenties, which led to the stock market. Uh, overinflation and the Great Depression. But that's a separate story. It wasn't the pandemic that produced that. In a way, the pandemic in India um, put more pressure on um, the British Raj. And, uh, you know, there has been some, but not enough research done on the relationship between the influenza pandemic and the radicalization of um, the national movement uh, from 1919, you know, uh, the... Uh, the protests against the Rolat, this Rolat Satyagraha and so on. Uh, what was the relationship? There was there's insufficient research done on that. But capitalism is not incapable of using this crisis to its advantage. That's the point I was making. Um, you know, it's in the middle of an ideological battle trying to make China the vic the uh, the villain here, um, and therefore say that it has been a grieved party. They will borrow against the future. They will tighten credit markets for the rest of the world. You'll see, um, you know, uh, countries around the world, you know, may find that they will have a harder time accessing credit. Uh, you might have long-term problems um, in, uh, you know, the global south where uh, the advanced capitalist countries will export the crisis, essentially. Uh, th this is what they often do. They, there's a crisis. They export the crisis to you know, India to uh, parts of the African continent, maybe bits of South America and so on. They are capable of exporting crises, uh, but by which I mean economic crises. Um, this medical crisis, they can handle ideologically. There will be loss of life and so on. But that's precisely why you shouldn't neglect the subjective factor. What's the left's position? 
you know, how is the left going to, as it were, dig its heels in and not accept, um, you know, these compromises? You know, they'll say, okay, let's do a little UBI, little uh, universal basic income. I mean, no, cannot compromise with them in order to save capitalism. That's got to be on the agenda. But by the way, in many countries now, the issue primarily is relief. Uh, and so there, you know, uh, even there, it's a class question. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not a, a, a universal question. Even relief is a class question. How do you provide relief? You know, uh, that distinction between giving cash payments to people and building public distribution of food systems. Um, the first one is a bourgeois approach. The second one is a socialist approach. Even relief is a class question. So that's there. Um, Abhijit Banerjee became very popular for saying that Modi is left of center and arguing that Modi is welfareist in his policies. Could you say more about this? How should we understand what welfare really is? What kind of social protections we need and so on? Look, I mean, uh, there's something quite ridiculous about the statement that Modi is left of center. I think that's a very, um, uh, I, I think that's a irresponsible thing for a Nobel Prize winner to say. Uh, I, I don't actually have much, um, I don't put much stake to, um, uh, sorry, that's me. I don't put much, I don't put much stake to um, the model that uh, uh, Abhijit Banerjee developed and so on. I'm not interested in all that. I think it's, it's, there's something quite odd about it, but we're not talking about that now. I mean, um, if you look at, I mean, I would suggest that, you know, economists before they pronounce things like Modi is left to center should go and look at the budget. Um, take a look at it, what, what it actually says. Um, Modi is, like many right-wing, far-right-wing politicians, uh, welfareist in the way they talk about welfare to their so-called community. You know, uh, after all, remember, the Nazis were officially the National Socialist Party. Um, they wanted socialism for Aryans. Um, you know, so let's be very clear that there is a kind of communal attitude but it's also just in rhetoric you know you'll say i want to help my people whatever you know um but what what do they mean by that? well you have to look at the budget you have to look at the policies and it's very clear that the attrition of funding um on the social and and, and social side in particular is is dramatic and also that where there is funding it's private public partnership it's privatization i think it's an irresponsible thing um, for somebody, particularly a Nobel Prize winner, to say, um, you know, uh, but Nobel Prize winners have been known to make irresponsible statements. Uh, so we can leave that. Um, how can the disjointed left make find common ground? Um, it's a good question. I mean, um, you know, and I'll, it's linked to another question. How important is it for people to join socialist or communist organizations? Look, um, Everybody doesn't have to be a, in a communist party. <laughs> I don't think that's necessary. Um, I think it's important to be a member of some sort of organization, organizations, all the way from neighborhood committees to wh whether you're in a trade union or a, a people's organization, you know, student movement, youth movement, women's organization, um, you know, movements against caste, movements against uh, racial discrimination, etc. I mean, you have to be organized. Um, one has to be involved in things. The, the way you build a robust society is not by being an enlightened individual, 
but by being engaged in society. Um, now, of course, I, I personally think politically it's very important to strengthen the communist movement um, around the world, uh, to strengthen the left flank, political flank. Um, but even the left flank must have a sense of, I think, um, openness to all kinds of, um, you know, where people are politically, you know, encourage people to go politically. And as, as I said, to bring reason into the world. Those of us who are Marxists or communists shouldn't come with the understanding that we have reason and we want to we want to inject reason into the world. You know, we are also struggling uh, to bring reason into the world, and I think that attitude is important. But what we're saying is, you need to see the broad um, uh, social development. Um, uh, you know, be created. I mean, you want to see that. Um, okay. Um, how about just two more questions? Uh, here's one of them. Will the current crisis lead to a new wave of internationalism? Well, my answer is I hope so. Um, at least on the left, I very much hope so. I hope that, um, you know, that's why if you go and look at our program, our declaration we've created at our website, uh, which has been shared already, um, you know, we have done this with the International Assembly of the Peoples, which is a platform of 200 people's organizations um, in about 100 countries of the world. So about half the countries of the world. It includes the Communist Party of Nepal, for instance, includes, um, you know, uh, the uh, movement of the landless workers in Brazil. It includes the Workers' Party of Tunisia and so on. So it's a very international platform. And, you know, I think there should be multiple international platforms like this. It's very important to, um, uh, you know, uh, to build declarations, have debates and discussions. Um, okay, uh, there's two that are interesting to me. One, I have a question. Naomi Klein has written about the shock doctrine, political strategy of using large-scale crises to push through policies that deepen inequality. Um, we are seeing this extensively employed in the neoliberal world, more authoritarian, blah, blah. We've even seen the measure being employed in South Korea with its strong if neoliberal state and socialist China. How do you think the nascent left movements around the world can politically unite and position itself against disaster nationalism? I really like this phrase, disaster nationalism, because that's what you're seeing from the Trump administration. You know, this idea that we have to take care of our people. Um, on the other hand, we have the example now of China, uh, sending doctors to Italy, um, sending doctors around the world, of Cuba, obviously, you know, the gold standard in international um, socialism, internationalism. I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, the Chinese government, when they had the big earthquake, I think in Sichuan, doctors came from Italy and from Pakistan. Um, and the Chinese people were very appreciative that Pakistani and Italian doctors came to help them during this earthquake, putting their own lives at risk. And so it was, you know, with a great deal of feeling that the Chinese wanted to go to Italy and to Pakistan now to assist them with COVID-19. I just don't understand why in India we don't have a tradition of internationalism on this kind of thing, you know. Why can't we send three or four doctors to um, China if there's an earthquake or, you know, send uh, people on these missions, you know, just as a good faith, uh, you know, to deepen our own internationalism. For some reason, um, in India, we don't have this tradition. We understand that India itself is a sort of United States of India. It's itself a continent. 
but yet our internationalism is very weak and i think i would encourage you to to look at what the cubans do it's not enough for us to say look how great the cubans are why can't we emulate the cubans and i think that's a question i would like you to think about um the the last one i'm going to uh, look at is the question of um communes uh, somebody i think quite nicely asked um you know you mentioned the role of commu cooperatives communes and decentralized ways of organizing society can you elaborate more on it well let me put it this way um you know we at leftward published a book um written by um the kerala finance minister thomas isaac and the collaborator from south africa um and the book is about a um about an enormous construction workers cooperative in kerala which now does many other things than construction work i wrote the introduction to that uh, book it's called possible communism and in it i go through marx's understanding of what is a cooperative and that phrase possible communism is from marx um he writes about how important cooperative forms of production are because see a communist future is not merely about redistributing the surplus that you produce in factories that are basically capitalist factories a communist future is about reconstructing production relations as well in fact primarily uh, to change the way we understand the commodification of labor in fact to abolish the commodification of labor we want to produce uh, goods where surplus value is not the primary determinant you know of the production process and so on so we have to study cooperatives more uh, because as marx i think correctly pointed out it's one of the most visible surface level examples we have of um, you know uh, the possibility of communism you know just as when marx and engels confronted the paris commune they said the commune is a form of political society for the future which later when lenin encounters the creation of the soviets he says the soviets like the commune are a form of the political society of the future in the same way i would argue that the cooperative movement is the form of production relations in the future and we need to look at this more we need to study this more we need to really understand um a great deal more about uh, what this might look like so i encourage you to take a look at oh i see that somebody has already uh, put in the chat that forward it was published at indian cultural forum take a look at it uh, have a look at at the uh, at that possible communism um introduction to the book um and you know uh, basically that's where we're going right towards possible communism and i think that's probably all that i have to say today great thank you so much thanks bye